0: All right. Any missing blanks, Lee? Are we good? Intention. Intention. So it was the first, we looked at Genesis for its institution, and then we looked at God's purpose or intention in it. Any other missing blanks? Sarah cherish, to keep warm and comfort. Literally, the Greek means to keep warm, and by extension, it's to comfort. When you put your arm around someone, you comfort. Hello. Right? Oh. Out of the mouth of babes.
1: <laughs> well, we have a, a prayer request that we didn't uh, remember. Um, no. Patrice's dad... Uh, accepted a job offer with a recycling company in Des Moines, and both of them, so my father and mother in law, are moving wow. to Des Moines. Wow. He starts on October 19, and so he's, they're going to be part of our church. Amen. So. That
0: is awesome. Yeah. Praise God. Next time, please try to submit the prayer requests in, <laughs> in an orderly fashion. God is not the author of confusion. I'm sure you know this. But. No, amen. That's awesome. That's awesome. Excellent. Okay. Any questions? No more missing, no more missing blanks or anything? We're good there? Oh, C1. 1, C1. Christ sustains and nourishes his church. Christ sustains and nourishes his church. One C one, one C one. Any other blanks? Okay. Any questions? If not, I got some places we can go. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Let me let me take this for a minute then. Um, but there may be questions. Who knows? <laughs> You're gonna chill right there. All right. Does the distinction I'm trying to make? Uh, between which is the original thing, and which is the uh, duplicate, or which is the which is the pattern and the model, and which is the um, imitation? Imita- yeah, the imitation. Which is which is original, and which is derivative? Which is foundational, and which is um, not foundational? Does, does that distinction make sense? Because it's an important distinction. Um, it makes it centers why marriage is sacred and holy, or part of the reason why marriage is sacred and holy, and why it cannot be altered. If marriage is... Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. If marriage truly were a human creation, if society came up with it, then it might be the case that God simply says, oh, here's this thing that you guys came up with, and you know, Christ in the church is kind of like that, I guess, and, and, and he describes it that way. And, and that would allow us then to change it a different way. All you have to conclude is that the time that Paul wrote the first century, marriage happened to line up in, in some significant ways with how Jesus raised the church. So Paul utilizes this helpful illustration. And you wouldn't necessarily have any reason why we couldn't then change it a different way. But when you find out that in fact the reality is Christ in the church, and then marriage is made to image that, well, and then unless Christ and the church has altered, there can be no alteration to the design and purpose of marriage. Does that, does that distinction make sense? And marriage then is the derivative thing. Christ and the church is the reality. C.S. Lewis, in um, one of his essays, I think it's The Way to Glory, I could be wrong, makes a really helpful um, illustration on this. He, he talks about how When we hear spiritual realities, they sound less real to us. Because we're fleshlings, because we're creatures, um, when when you remove things that define our lives, strife, travail, difficulty, pain, suffering, death, and you talk about an eternal state where those things are not present, it becomes less real to us. And that's where you get these pictures of people sitting on clouds with harps and and, and Lewis pushes back very helpfully insisting that actually, if we're to take the Bible seriously, it's the spiritual world that's real. We're the Shadowlands. If you've seen the movie, *Is Shadowlands, they made a movie about him, Anthony Hopkins is in it, it's okay. But that's where the metaphor comes from, that our world is the image and the reflection, and his world and the world he inhabits is more real. So when God makes fathers and sons his relationship to the son is the original pattern and fathers and sons you know something it's something like that is the, is what he's saying not the reverse that god these relationships are foundational and so we're like well how can it be father and son when no one was in labor and no one gave birth trust me it's more father and son than abner and myself Abner myself is the image, the shadow, the, the thing that God can say. It's, it's something like that. My relationship with the Son is something like that. And it, it's, he gives a helpful illustration. I think I've relayed this before to try to show both the struggle of how we can struggle with thinking. How can the eternal state, life, and glory really be as glorious? How would we not get bored eventually? He talks about a woman who 's an accomplished artist who 's locked in a tower with her infant son. Her son was a few, few weeks old when he came in, and as she there 's no windows in the tower, but she 's furnished with art supplies, uh, paper and pencil. And so as she raises her son, she does it in the hopes that one day he will, in fact, be free. And so one of the things she's doing in her education of her son is trying to teach him about the things he would encounter in the outside world. She draws trees, she draws windmills, she draws houses, all these things he's never seen. And and imagine his surprise one day when he realizes that, in fact, things in the real world don't have lines around their edges. And he goes, what? He says, oh, no, no, dear, there's there's not lines around things. In his mind, then, you'd understand, they become less real. What gives the tree on the paper any definition, any distinction from the white space? It's the line. But in a very real sense, when you see a tree, you'll understand, because it's so much more real and substantial, it doesn't need lines around it. And so he's not saying that's the way it is with God and us. He's simply saying, if you can see how that, that rationale works there, something like that must be what's going on here. We must be cautious against the temptation to think that when you remove the things that define our existence now death, suffering, difficulty, travail, those elements, that it's less real. Um, when God insists, there, I mean, Paul insists, and God through Paul insists that you know, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, but God has prepared for those who love Him. That Paul can't even speak of the glories to come, and you say, I, "I guess, I guess, I'm just the guy in the tower who thinks trees without lines around them aren't really trees." You know, so that's the reality we're trying to get to: is that God means to reveal himself. He's a self-revealing God, and and he makes us in ways, and he fashioned the world in ways to help reveal more about himself. There's another thing in marriage that, that also gets imaged, right? So we wrestle with the God who is three and yet is one, and when God makes man and woman in his image, he makes people who are in a relationship who are two and one. So in some senses then, we can even see some... God makes man and woman in his image, he makes a family unit. There is no actual marriage ceremony in, in Genesis 2. Somehow Adam recognized her as his, as his wife. He doesn't marry her. This is my wife. I don't know how that works. God made them married, something like that. And the two then become one. Well, all I'm trying to say is it's interesting that being made in God's image, there's a plurality and a fam- familial relationship and a two-ness and a oneness there's some interesting similarities, right? Um, there's more pictures of how some of these things might relate. Um, and, and so that's what I'm trying to get at when I talk about what's the derivative and what's the authentic. Does that, that make any sense? Is that, is that, to me, it's a really significant point, and I, and I wrestle with whether I'm being clear trying to articulate it because Paul's insistence, I'm saying Genesis 2 is talking about Christ in the church, not negating what it meant and means prior to him saying that, but it's, it's a massive statement. Any questions on that?
1: Okay, next thought.
0: So, what do we do with Paul adding meaning to the Bible? Is that, is that fishy? Is that suspect? The reason why I say that is because. In the first two or three centuries, one of the most common approaches to reading the Bible, the Apostolic Fathers, was allegorical. You find the deep spiritual meaning. You read Augustine. He's, he's even into this to some degree. Um, Augustine, sorry. Is a, um, you read Augustine. And, uh, and, and w- what they're saying is, well, we're just imitating Paul. Paul says the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. Paul says Genesis 2 is about Christ. And even today, it's popular to talk about the Christological meaning. Until you've preached Christ in the text, you haven't preached the text. And in one very real sense, all of Scripture is ultimately about Jesus Christ. I don't know if every phrase, every sentence itself is, but it's part of a text which is all about Jesus. Absolutely. And so oftentimes there'll be a push to, because of what they, they, we think we see Paul doing, um, of doing the same thing. And if, if you can make a text about Jesus, isn't that a good thing? So Rahab's red cord is about the blood of Jesus. Um, and you can find all sorts of other comparisons and things. And so it's important to understand what Paul is doing what he's not doing. Another reason I bring this up is that if you've... If you've heard anything about dispensationalism, non-dispensationalism, um, if you're aware of any of those categories, one of the disagreements or one of the areas that needs to be worked out, and if I had to talk to somebody who is non-dispensational, our church, our doctrinal statement, I'm a, some type of dispensationalist, um, it comes down to this issue. Because honest, honest... now. The other categories use covenantal. Honest covenantal guys. Van Gemeren, other guys, will freely admit that a prima facie, a plain reading of the Old Testament expects a messianic kingdom, earthly, in the geographic zone of Israel. Freely acknowledge that. And then they will go on and say, but, however, the New Testament makes it clear that's not the case. It's a spiritual kingdom. And that national Israel... Um, is expanded to the church and all peoples and all tribes and all tongues. And so one of my, if I could talk to somebody who holds that view, one of my concerns is, and, and what I want to try to clarify here, is there's a difference between saying a given Old Testament passage meant meaning A, whatever meaning A is. In this case, here's a good example. This is a description of Adam and Eve's marriage, and it's a, pattern for Israel and for us to copy. This is what it means to be married. You leave your mother and father, you cleave to your wife, you become one flesh. That's why people get married, that's what marriage is. That's meaning A. It meant that. There's a difference between Paul coming along and saying, in addition to meaning A, there is also meaning B, and there's no conflict between them. It also is about Christ and the church. There's a difference between doing that and saying it acts so In that instance, it meant A, the New Testament comes along and says it means A and B. It's different than it meant A, and Paul comes along and says, no, silly, it doesn't mean A, it means B. If you think that's what Paul's doing, I think you're saying God's a liar. Because what you're saying then is God said something, it meant something, and then it stopped meaning that and it meant something else. And when people do that to me, I call them liars. Right? The only other option would be, it couldn't be understood. It meant nothing until the New Testament came along. Those are your options. The Old Testament, when it speaks about these things, either it meant something that it doesn't mean anymore, or... You couldn't understand it till Paul and Jesus came along, and it's just been this mystery that Israel. In which case, my thought is, well, then why did God say it to Israel if they couldn't possibly understand it until you know, until Jesus and Paul show up? So, Paul adding meaning is different than Paul changing meaning. Does that does that distinction? Maybe it's subtle. And if if you don't care about these debates or this is categories, don't worry about it. But there is a big difference of understanding what Paul is doing. Paul is not saying. This was never about marriage. This was never about men and women getting married. It's only about Jesus. He's saying it's also about Jesus. That's different than changing its meaning. Does that, does that make the, any sense? Again, there's some subtlety here. Any, any thoughts, questions, complaints? Yes. And then Chris Vetterich over there. Yeah. Oh, you're pointing. Yes. Yeah. So I'm thinking through still what you're saying. I have no issue with what you're saying. Yeah. I'm also thinking and there's a big difference between Jesus and Paul obviously. But when Jesus said
1: if you become angry at someone you're guilty of murder. Yeah. When you look lustfully at a woman you're guilty of adultery. Is it similar or is it different?
0: That is an hu- inadvertently huge question. Um, it, well, there's two. What, I mean, what I'm getting at is amongst good Bible-believing, him in heaven Christians, there's discussion and debate over what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount. In one viewpoint, Jesus is simply unpacking what was always there. Jesus is simply, in that case, there's no new information. It's the equivalent of you should have known this. Anybody who's faithful and studied their Bible could have known this. And one view, that's one answer. The other view is Jesus is not expounding the Old Testament law, but rather what Paul speaks of as the law of Christ, He's laying that out. And in which case, it's not saying this is what the Ten Commandments meant. Rather, this is what King Jesus requires. That's what makes it a huge issue. Um, But I think under the, the view that Jesus is doing basically a sermon on the Ten Commandments, I think the argument would be, no, he's telling us what was always there. He's telling us what any person who is spiritual and thoughtful would conclude, um, I I believe. Um, But I'll give you another example. Uh, When Paul talks about the commandment for oxen, not muzzling the ox while it threshes the grain. Do you think God's really concerned with oxen? But it's not to say Israelites shouldn't muzzle their ox. The point was, I'm telling you not to muzzle your ox while they thresh, because I want you to see something else as well. You know, it's not as though it stops meaning that. It's additionally, this is a principle that God wants in place that when people work, you pay them. And if you work in the gospel, you make your living from the gospel. And if you work in the church, you make your living from the church. That's that's what Paul is saying. But there's an example where Paul adds spiritual meaning, develops further in Old Testament passage. My insistence being, I'm unaware of any passages where the meaning is in conflict so you can go from it means thing A to it means A and B, but I, I would, I'm not aware of any place, and I would really drop some flags. Sports analogy, Greg, see that? Uh, I would drop all types of flags. It meant A, but it doesn't mean a anymore. Now it means B. And I would say, in that situation, I don't see how you're not making God a liar. Um, and so, because if I was to talk, because basically when you get in these discussions, and good guys, I mean, when I go to T4G, almost everyone at T4G is non dispensational. You got MacArthur, and you know that's about it. And I love the so I'm not I'm not trying to make this an issue. We're going to be getting in fights over, but what you generally have, and I'm broad brushstrokes here, is people who take the New Testament and they 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 make it become the priority to reinterpret or to read the Old Testament. And so they'll talk about New Testament priority. And, so the, and the honest ones will say, no, I totally get it. You read Jeremiah, you read Zechariah, you read Deuteronomy, I totally get you're expecting a kingdom. But then Paul comes along and says, no, not physical, it's spiritual. It's in the church. You know, all millennialists, the whole all millennial is no earthly millennium. Or you got historic premill. No, the, the earthly kingdom's literal, but it's confined to Israel? That's not literal. You know, it's different verbs, um, And so if I could have a friendly conversation, I would really like to press, okay, let's look at a particular passage. Let's look at Jeremiah 31. What could Moses and the Israelites have understood it to say? And does it still mean that today? And I think the, the horns, I mean, maybe there's a good answer, but the horns of the dilemma I would try to force them upon is either it was unknowable. You could not understand Jeremiah 31 until Jesus and Paul show up. Or... It meant something, it doesn't mean that anymore. And I think both of those are pretty difficult landing paths. And I'd love to have that talk, because I'm sure these guys are thoughtful, they've thought that through. I have yet to hear a satisfactory explanation, which doesn't mean one isn't out there. But that's precisely where I'd want to have a discussion if somebody on the other side with me were having a burger and and having a peaceful conversation. like, Help me understand how Jeremiah didn't change its meaning. Uh, how Jews who understood it didn't have... Either they couldn't understand it, or it used to mean that, but now it doesn't mean that. That's the type of stuff that I would want to have... That's where I'd want to press. And I'm sure the guys in this have want to press me on some stuff too, most likely millennial sacrifices, but we're not going to go there. Um, But anyway, that's that's the distinction I'm trying to make with what Paul is doing here. I don't want you to think, oh, Paul's suddenly, presto, changing what it means. He's adding to what it means. He's not changing what it means. Um, at least, not in this instance. So, make sense? Okay. Any other questions on this? Thoughts?
1: Could I get a quick definition of terms on a pre-mill, and post- sure?
0: Okay. So, um, millennium is referring to what? Revelation seven times the first was a thousand years. What do you do with that? So, everybody's got to do something with it. And so then what you do with it defines your, es- okay, bigger terms, eschatology, um, last things, the study of the future at the end of the world, last things. And so th- for whatever reason, the differing views are named around how they interpret, how they handle the thousand years in, in Revelation. And so you've got all millennialism, which says they are, they are not referring to an earthly kingdom, they're not necessarily limited to a thousand years, but it's simply spiritualized. And this is probably the majority of Christian interpretation over history. This view would be up there. This is probably one of the most popular views among conservative Bible-believing, gospel-holding Christians. Um, all millennialism is being fulfilled in the church. It's being fulfilled spiritually in the world. So the key point here thousand years isn't anything other than a symbolic number for a big period of time. And any description of events on earth, that, that's just, that's spiritualized or allegorical or whatever, right? Then you've got um, historic premillennialism. Premillennial, we are living in the time before the millennium. It is yet future. There is a millennial. There is a kingdom. It's not now. So all millennialism, kingdom's now. Whatever that's being talked about with the kingdom is now. Pre-millennialism, it's yet future. Post-millennialism is uh, that Christ returns after the kingdom. So a post-millennialist believes um, that uh, the church will spread like leaven through a loaf, um, bearing fruit in all the world, and the world will become more and more Christian. And one by one, the, the nations of the world will become Christian nations. They will become theocratic One by one. And once this kingdom is established, Christ will come back. So in premillennialism, Christ comes back to set up a kingdom. In postmillennialism, Christ comes back after the kingdom. In amillennialism, there's no earthly kingdom. Okay? Those are the terms. And then amongst premillennialism, you have dispensational premillennialism, non-dispensational premillennialism. Here's the distinction. An earthly millennium with national, fleshly, physical, descended of Isaac, Israel, having a prominent central role, or no. That's, that's the difference. Um, and so there's historic pre-mill, which would be, no, there's no distinction. Um, that also means geographic would matter too. Does it matter whether it's on the hill of Hanon? Does it matter that it's at Mount Zion in Jerusalem or not? Does it matter if it 's the Jewish physical people according to the flesh or not? Um, and depending on how you answer that question, you 'd either be historic pre or dispensational premill. Our church doctrinal statement, my position, if you go to back to my series on Zechariah, I think it 's one of the clearest places to, try to where i 've tried to argue this, um, our, we're the, this this church, my position is his, his dispensational premillennialism. Um, But it all does come down to, I've been having a conversation with Greg Rolak. I sent you that email. It all comes back to, as people are trying to figure out, because the reason this matters, the reason I'm belaboring the point is, your and my interpretation of the Bible is only valid, justified, based on our method of interpretation, or what is called hermeneutics. You have the word harmonized in the same root. All of us who read our Bible have a hermeneutic. Even if your hermeneutic is... I just flipped to a Bible verse, put my finger on. It, that's my verse for today. It's a bad hermeneutic, but it's a hermeneutic. Um, but we have, and so when you want to challenge someone's interpretation, what you should say is, "Help me understand how you came to that conclusion." Right, and then you want to check for consistency. If you if you want to spiritualize this thing over here, well, then you have to spiritualize this thing over there. Right. So I mean, again, one of the challenges I would make to a millennialist, um, if I could, one of the one of the and again, there have to be give and take. I don't. I don't want to make it sound like I'm stupid. But one of the one of the spots that I think is weak is, you go and read um, Leviticus twenty three, Deuteronomy twenty eight, twenty nine, the blessings and the curses. Were the curses literally fulfilled to Israel? Did they eat their children? Did they get driven from the land? Did they um, experience these curses literally or spiritually? Well, undeniably, literally. Okay, when blessing and curse is laid out in one chunk, how then do we move from a literal fulfillment of curses to a spiritual fulfillment of blessings? Because the blessings are all about the land, the crops, the geopolitical safety. Now, maybe there's a good answer for that, but I'm, what the whole nature of that argument is consistency. How do you interpret one passage one way and another passage another way? And there may well be a great answer. I haven't heard it. But that's one of the places I want to press. But I'm pressing on, is your hermeneutic, is your interpretation method consistent? Well, the ultimate test for interpretation method is, are you interpreting the Bible like Jesus, like Paul, like Peter, and like James? So the ultimate test of theological systems and hermeneutics is, lining it up with how Paul reads his Bible, how Peter reads his Bible, how Jesus reads his Bible. And so the issue of how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, where we've got inspired interpretation, where God himself is exegeting his text, where he's citing his text, we want to pay great attention because that's the only way we're going to be able to settle, ultimately, on-mill, post-mill. I mean, otherwise we can wait till it happens, but... The, the only way before, before those things happen we can make any progress in settling them is by studying Jesus and the apostles' hermeneutic and learning from that. Or to put it another way, if we were to have a representative from every camp here, the winner should be the one who can demonstrate they're reading their Bible most like Jesus, Peter, Paul, James. That's, that's ultimately what's going to vindicate a hermeneutic. Um, and so studying, especially the difficult citations. Some of the citations of the Old Testament are really easy in the sense of understanding how they do that. You know, a virgin, so i can see a virgin. Well, actually, that's a tough one. Um, but some of them, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Well, Jesus got to be born in Bethlehem. But then you go read Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son, speaking of the nation of Israel, being birthed and brought out of Egypt, and yet Matthew cites it as if it was supposed to be predictive. But you go read that in Hosea, it's not immediately obvious that Hosea is predicting anything. So is Matthew stupid? No, I am. I'm missing something. You've got to go figure out what's going on with that. When Matthew says, this, was, this happened to fulfill what was written out of Egypt, I called my son. So there's an example of a challenging, what's the rationale? Because Matthew is not saying, I'm an apostle and I'm adding spiritual meaning. He's making an argument. He's, he thinks he's being persuasive. Which means what Paul's doing here, flat, I'm, I speak for God sometimes, guys, and I'm telling you a mystery. I mean, that's basically what he's doing in Ephesians 5. What Matthew's doing is not that. Matthew is is persuading and arguing, which means he's, accept, he's assuming, I think, we are understanding his rationale. This happened to fulfill what was written out of Egypt to call my son. Matthew's thinking I'm tracking with him. He thinks he's made some points. He thinks he's built his argument a little better. And so what's his reading that makes Hosea work that way? That, that, that's why that's a, that can be a challenging passage. The book of Hebrews and Matthew are probably the two most challenging in this regard. And so as you grow and your study of the Bible, you're going to get... A good thing to track up is track up the Old Testament citations and see how they're being used and... It's not like drop what you're doing, but as you mature, as you grow, it's, it's, it's the biggest issue in my study in the last five, ten years. It's just getting a better understanding and, and marveling at how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and how the, the Bible is, is so obviously an integrated mind, you know, um, so obviously one mind revealed in it. It's, anyway, this is a big long aside, but because this is one of the big points of the New Testament said in the Old, And this can sometimes be used by people to argue, see, here's a spiritual meaning. Um, No. No, that's not what's... He's not changing the meaning. I wouldn't even say it's spiritual. It's it's a flat-out... God did this intention to create a model for the church. Um, You're not spiritualizing the text. But anyway. Questions, thoughts, complaints? Um, Greg.
1: Well, I just have a question since you brought up uh, pre all-millennial. Is there a consistent um, pattern of a person that's all-millennial having to do with whether they're pre-trib,
0: post-trib? Any, any okay, tri- the trib question only matters for dispensationalists. Um, basically, if... We would consider an amillennialist a post-trib person because they would say all the events of Revelation happen spiritually and then Christ returns. So he's coming at the end, right? Would that, would that be, would you, we would size, they would not size them up this way. But, but as we understand the categories, they're post-trib. Oh, get, 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 give them the mic so people are listening in the road
1: so it would be a completely different category because they take a um generally speaking a historical view right. of um of revelation saying that revelation what it is speaking of is a um re, basically rehashing what has happened already speaking of it in sort of allegorical terms right right and speaking of the, um, basically the conquering of the King of Jesus in spite of what has already happened, and then um, dispensationalism is a an inherently futurist view of that, saying this is things that are going to happen in the future. Um, and then postmillennialism is weird because generally speaking, they rely on a sort of futurist view of things that have already happened for us so a lot of this stuff is stuff that was fulfilled in 70 AD um and it's primarily dependent on say revelation being written before the destruction of Jerusalem so it's it's all all that to say it's an it's can't be spoken of in the same way because they're completely different categories
0: well and that's I'm, all i 'm saying is from how we define the categories where we would define the categories is Jesus return pre during or at the end of the tribulation whatever they, they take say, the tribulation
1: and, to mean they 'd put him at after right but then their their whole thing is that the tribulation is a that is a non in general they would say that it's not a um trying to think how to say this without <laughs> that, w- that w- they would agree with. Um, generally speaking, this idea of the seven-year tribula- tribulation is not on their radar eschatologically right. at all. So it's, 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 that's why I'm saying it's not a um, it's not really fair to call them pre-milled, post-milled, because no. they just they straight up are like, yeah, this stuff's already done.
0: Yeah. No, no, I understand it. All I'm saying is, from our viewpoint, say this. They think Jesus returns after all the prophecy and revelations fulfilled. Right. Not middle or before any of it. There's, when he comes back, all the predictions, except maybe the eternal kingdom and the eternal state, are fulfilled. When he returns, nothing else on earth takes place. The action on earth is done when Jesus returns. Okay. And therefore, from our point of view, we'd call that post. They would never identify themselves that way.
1: Right. And that was, yeah. my, that okay. was where oh, yeah. I was yeah. Yeah. sort of taking, taking issues, just that... Let try to. I guess I always try to let them speak for themselves. Sure. So they they would absolutely repudiate the idea of being pre mill or like pre trib post trib anything like that because it's a it's a non issue in yeah. their eschatology. Yeah, yeah. And so, it's totally also worth like just because they like this is like what you said this is. L- the nor- this was the normal. This yeah. was what everyone believed for yeah. literally all of church history up yeah. until like 200 well, this years. Is,
0: ago. Yeah, Roman Catholic theology is all mill, right?
1: I think it would tend a little more towards post mill, but I, I don't know okay. much about
0: it. Okay. L- I've Catholic. always, okay. But, but, so the reformers are going to inherit this, they're not going to inherit anything other than this. Um, I, I anyway, I, I thought Roman Catholicism was amillennial, but
1: well, the and that's I. This is not an area of my per- personal uh, like right, right. expertise, but yeah, yeah, my right. understanding was that generally speaking, post mill and a mill were more or less intertwined for most of church history, and then it kind of split off after the Reformation. Gotcha. And the more optimistic view became what we know as post-mill, and yeah. the more pessimistic oh, view there was a mill
0: There was a time where, credibly, the known world was Christian, and theocratically Christian. If you define Roman Catholicism in that day and age as Christian. But there was a day and age where all of the known... Modern world was ruled by Christian religion, Catholic religion. I mean, so if you want to argue the whole world's become Christian, there's a period of time where that looks really credible. That that could happen. I could see that happening. And then the Reformation challenged that, and or the different Christian kings could fight in war with each other as Christians fight. Christ, people professing to be Christians fight people professing to be Christians because of their differing views on Christianity. And so the religious wars. Um, of the of the Reformation, did a lot to sour people's thinking and their optimism, and it, that's where you see the disappearance of the divine right of kings. And so that's where you get guys like Rousseau and Locke coming up with a different basis, foundational basis for government. Because apparently God makes the king. Well, he says God made him king, and he says God made him king, and now they're fighting who's right. We need a different basis for government. You know, that's that's where those guys are coming from with rationalism. And the anyway. Anyway, we've got four minutes. Any other questions, or do you want me to let you out early?
1: Going once. Going twice.
0: Don't pick up your kids early, but you are dismissed. Thank you.